I think control is one of the most underrepresented concepts in therapy. Think about it, right? Depression is, I can't do anything to make it better. Anxiety is, I can't control me being safe. Uh, trauma is, I couldn't control the situation. In fact, there are studies with trauma that if somebody has been in a traumatic situation, a, a disaster zone, um, and they were given a task, go get water, go get blanket, their rate of post-traumatic stress disorder goes down significantly because simply they had control over something. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm really excited today to be talking to Dr. Jeffrey Kranzler, and he is the author of the upcoming book, The Crimson Protector. And we're going to talk a little bit about building confidence, overcoming social anxiety, and even how to handle bullying. Thanks for being here, Dr. Kranzler. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today. Will you start by telling us who you are and what you do? Absolutely. And uh, I want to thank you, uh, Penny, for having me uh, today. I have just uh, recently started listening to this podcast, and I absolutely love it. So it really is an honor for me uh, to be here. Thanks. So uh, my name is, uh, is Jeffrey Kranzler, Dr. Jeffrey Kranzler. I am a therapist in the uh, Bethesda, Maryland area. I work with uh, children, adolescents, and adults uh, with anxiety, mood um, challenges, and um, I specifically focus on individuals on the autism spectrum. Uh, I love what I do, and uh, I focus on the skills work. Uh, that's involved. I, I love the fact that if people have the opportunity to gain skills, that it may not eliminate everything uh, in terms of anxiety and depression, but gives them the power and the control to be able to feel uh, like they have a handle on it. Uh, my work with individuals on the autism spectrum is different. And I, I think you'll notice the fact that I don't say autism spectrum disorder because uh, to me, autism is a difference not a disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, and the work that I do uh, with those individuals is uh, working to help uh, develop the strengths that come with uh, autism, as well as uh, learn the skills to manage through a world uh, run by neurotypicals, by people who are not on the autism spectrum, uh, how to manage and navigate uh, so that they can uh, achieve what they want and they can fully express um, their strengths uh, and their contributions to the world. I love the focus on skills because I think for parents, it's easy to get caught up in the differences and the fact that there are differences and there's struggles around those. And we don't often look at it as a lot of skill building, which is really a big portion of our job as a parent of a kid who is neurodiverse. And so I love that, that that's really your focus with with the individuals on the spectrum that you're working with. And, and we have so many parents in our audience of kids who have dual diagnoses, ADHD and autism, including my own son, 
um, who's also on the spectrum as well. So great work that you're doing. And I know that your patients and your clients certainly are very big fans. Do you want to start maybe by talking about the Crimson Protector, what that book is, who it's for, and then I think we can lead into kind of the themes in the book and and talking more about that. Absolutely. I'd love to talk about it. So The Crimson Protector is a superhero novel. And in the course of the novel, uh, not through any workbook uh, section of it, but in the course of the novel, in the course of interactions between characters and the action that take that takes place, kids learn to build confidence, uh, overcome social uh, anxiety, and learn how to handle bullying. And the reason why I wrote it is, uh, I, again, like I said, I, I love teaching skills. And when I teach skills in session, I use a lot of different curricula. And uh, what I love about the, the curricula is the role-playing, making things exciting. Uh, when I teach skills, uh, it's a very active uh, piece, not only with the role-playing, but with the positive reinforcement, um, the reviewing of skills. And I've always uh, believed in the power of fiction. Actually, uh, in college, I, I did not study uh, psychology or social work. Uh, my my major at Johns Hopkins University was uh, the writing seminars. Uh, so uh, until I was about 22, I believed that I was going to be a, a writer for The Simpsons. Um, <sighs> and right. uh, and I was said by the end of his time, uh, by the end of uh, you know 2003, 2004. I said, you know, how much longer will The Simpsons go for? It's probably going to be over. Uh, I better see something else. And, you know, it's 2020 and The Simpsons are still going now. So, <laughs> but I'm still glad. I am still glad I made the choice I did. Um, but I've always loved writing. I've always loved the power of fiction to teach. And I think one mm-hmm. of the reasons why fiction is so powerful is because it teaches lessons through showing rather than through didactic uh, teaching. You know, a kid in reading a good book is really living the book. So when a character does something, when a character has an interaction, if the book is a good book, the reader feels like they've had that interaction, like they've done that. Um, and the lessons get ingested uh, more organically. It gets, it gets ingested um, because it's part of the story that they connect to. So as I was teaching these skills, as I'm a therapist, I wanted to be able to communicate the skills in a different way, in a way that um, had a transmission that that wasn't available in the kind of work that I do, which is, of course, necessary and very effective in session. But I wanted something in addition for kids who were learning the skills to have it uh, hit home in another way, but also for kids who are struggling, who don't have adults who recognize what's going on, who are either holding it back or sending out signals that are not being met. And to have at least, you know, it doesn't, first, it doesn't replace therapy and doesn't place complete skill building, but at least to get a taste and a, and a powerful piece of some of the skills that they could use. Yeah. And, and it reminds me of social stories. Yeah. Is, is that absolutely. a good comparison? Oh, absolutely. And I, I love uh, doing social stories. It's very, very similar. Um, to that and, and the subtlety of the novel. And, and so with a social story, it, it, it's straight out, hey, listen, this is what we're doing. And I love the, the novel piece of it because it's learning without knowing that you're learning. Exactly. 
And I love that piece too. But yes, that's why I love the role plays that I do. I love the social stories involved in skills building because it all, again, it's about transmission uh, of information that, that gets ingested in a way that sticks and that's personal. It's made theirs. And you're not giving something to somebody and saying, learn this, remember this. It's live this. And when you live something, it's such a different uh, way of being. Yeah, I love that. And then, you know, I love social stories and, and books like yours because our kids will engage with them and they don't recognize that they're learning something. They don't recognize that by giving them this book, we're actually giving them something we want them to learn. It's just part of the story. And when they get engaged in the story, then they're automatically building skills. And that's a beautiful thing, especially when you have a middle or high schooler who doesn't want to listen to what you say as a parent. (laughs) And when it comes from you, it's automatically kind of turned off. So, you know, social stories in these books can be amazing for that in that it kind of takes us out of the middle a little bit of that. And, and it's more well received by our kids, I think. A hundred percent. And I think you pointed out something really important that uh, as parents, uh, because we have bled, sweat, and cried for them, and many of us have carried them for nine months, we automatically are discounted. Everything we said is irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I, I love that what this happens is, uh, you know, I'll be in, in a meeting, in a session with uh, a tween or preteen or, or even a teen, and, you know, a situation will be brought up. And in that part of the session, a parent's in, and I'll say something, and the teen will go, yeah, that sounds right. And a parent, this happens multiple times, a parent's jaw will drop. And they will turn to their team and say, I literally said that exact same thing in the car. And you told me I was an idiot. Yep. And, and I said, because I'm not you, the, the only, we're saying the same thing, but because I'm not their parent, I get listened to. So anytime yeah. a, a message could be given from somebody else, that it has a certain power. It definitely does. And we've, I've had the same conversation with my own son about his therapist saying something and he goes, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I've been saying that for months. <laughs> Why do you not listen to me? But, it, you know, it's the way of the world with teens and parents. It's the natural relationship there, not just with kids with ADHD or kids on the spectrum. It's really the natural order of things. I can remember being the same way when I was a teen. I didn't want to listen to my parents either, but I would listen to other adults that I had a connection with. So there's a lot of power in, in bringing other people into the team in that way, too. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the themes that are running through this book. To build confidence, overcome social anxiety, and handle bullying. These, of course, I think are really, really common for the kids of our listeners here. They really struggle with confidence, especially I think confidence and bullying are the ones that I think we as parents focus more on. Um, I think social anxiety isn't as understood by a lot of adults and parents. I grew up with severe social anxiety and my parents certainly didn't get it. And I didn't really, you know, as that teenager, I didn't know what I was struggling with. I just knew that I could not be around people I didn't know. You know, I would do anything in the world not to be put in that situation. And my parents didn't, you know, have the knowledge to recognize that. And I think that a lot of parents still, it's really hard to tease out what's anxiety and what just looks like behavior. So much of anxiety actually looks like 
something entirely different. It doesn't always show up as fear on the surface. Absolutely. And so let's start with confidence, I think. How how did you weave that into the story? How are kids kind of learning what to focus on? Sure. So one of the essential parts of the story, one of the parts of, of, of my life is I, I am also a, a consultant for the National Mentoring Resource Center. Um, I love mentoring. I, uh, I got my PhD. I did my dissertation on mentoring. I've been uh, running mentoring programs in schools, colleges, community organizations, a uh, really big belief in it uh, started with uh, the fact that I am a big brother of three amazing little sisters. And so I've always identified mm. as a big brother. Um, and a mentor is a really big part of the story. Um, the first part um, that underlies this is that the character actually reaches out for help. The character realizes, and, and the catalyst for it is that uh, he has a crush and just can't approach her. And it just drives this character absolutely bonkers. And one of the key pieces in the story is that the character is the one who reaches out for, finds out about a mentoring and reaches out for a mentor. And one of the messages uh, that I want to give kids and across the board with all of these uh, three components is don't wait for an adult to recognize it. Be proactive, reach out for adult help. It's not saying do this all by yourself, but be the first to reach out and encourages them to do that. So the main character, James Gast, who will then become the Crimson Protector eventually, uh, he reaches out to a mentor to build his confidence. A lot of the mm. building of confidence comes in the interactions between him and his mentor, as well as the action that takes place uh, subsequent to it. So for example, uh, if he reaches out to a mentor and the mentor says, he says, I need to build confidence. I need, I want to talk to this girl. I want to do that. And the mentor, in one of the scenes, the mentor has the main character go bowling. And he picks bowling because the character says, uh, yes, the character, yes, James. Uh, and, the, and the mentor is Cody Daniels. So Cody asks James, he says, uh, you know, so what do you stink at? And, and James is confused. So he lists the things and bowling is one of those things. And what the mentor does is he has James go bowling and fail at bowling and teaches him how to manage failure. Because a big part of this book, a big thing that has to do with both confidence as well as social anxiety is the capacity to change your attitude and your reactions to failure. That is actually the, the biggest piece of building confidence is not the successes. Uh, that comes as a result, but the first step always is dealing with potential failure. Uh, because at, what underlies social anxiety? What underlies a lack of confidence? It is a fear and an avoidance of falling on your face, of being humiliated, of being embarrassed, of absolutely not knowing what to do. And that underlies us. So if we address that, that's a key piece in building those. Yeah, I love that because that's kind of, where, and I've been open about this on the podcast, but this is kind of where we have gotten stuck at age 16, 17 is some pretty extreme avoidance of anything that might be uncomfortable, you know, whether he knows it or not, anything that could possibly at all be uncomfortable or painful or hard. It, there's been an extreme avoidance. And so that's what we're working on now is really trying to build that not just resilience, but determination and perseverance that 
they need to be a little more fearless in the world, you know, to take risks, not in safety, but in day to day life, you know, going after something that they want in the career field or even in hanging out with friends, you know, in, in social situations. It's really something that can kind of shut things down. And that's what we've unfortunately come to. But now the realization is that we really have to build that. We have to build that skill of being more resilient and more determined um, to really push even when things feel like they might be hard or uncomfortable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I, I feel that this is not just an individual struggle, but I feel that, you know, in general, in Gen Z, that this, uh, this is a, a, a trait that pops up a lot. The, the fear of messing up, the fear of not being successful immediately. And I, and I don't know exactly where it's from, but I kind of see some trends uh, that, that these kids are being exposed to that I think a lot of us weren't, um, you know, on, from the one hand where if we made a mistake, it was forgotten. Uh, where if they make a mistake, it gets posted on YouTube forever in a title called Epic Fail. Right. You know, as we were all growing up, the people who were successful, uh, they were in their 40s. They were in their 50s. Mm -hmm. Their model today are the people who make an app or the people who make a logistic service or the people who make a social media platform and are successful at 20. And so not seeing the years of necessary failure it's just not in the consciousness uh, uh, these days. Yeah, that's so true because my son has had the same experience. He creates digital music and I said, you know, you got to put it out there and you have to try to build a following if this is what you want to continue to do, you know, work in, in music technology in some way. And so he put some out there on YouTube and in a week, he didn't have hordes of followers and fans. And so he gave up. He thought that was the measure. You know, right. if it, if you put it out there and it doesn't stick, then you failed. And we've had to really talk about that. And it, you know, I didn't think about it in that way, but their, their sort of microculture for their generation really is on the surface. It appears that there's a lot of immediacy to success, to, you know, doing well that really isn't the whole story. They're not getting the whole story. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a chance to speak and, and meet the research and development guy who discovered the Dave Matthews band. And mm. what he, you know, what he discussed was the, the following that they worked so hard to develop, you know, it was nonstop touring. It was the amount of work and the, the amount of struggle that it took. And then once he, he saw this, he picked up Dave Matthews' band, not because he particularly liked the music, but because he saw the supporters' reaction and they were singing every single lyric mm -hmm. to the songs. And that is not something that they got on their first night out. Uh, that's not something they got on their second or the second year or the third year um, out. It's something that took a really, really long time. You know, kids these days are not listening to ACDC and they're not hearing the lyric. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Right. They're not yeah. hearing about all the, the the failure, which was a part of our culture, the necessary failure. And that's, you know, I, I, I'm not a, a, an expert in today's music, but I don't think there is any significant portion of the music or the culture that simply talks about 
the consistent failure before achieving. That's such a good point. That's a big aha for me right now that they're just getting a different message. They're just not seeing that it takes work. It takes perseverance to make something happen. Um, So important. And it sounds like your book is touching on that as well and showing that, you know, you have to keep after something and work at it. Absolutely. One of the uh, interactions is, you know, at the very end of his first meeting with the mentor, you know, the character says, so can you build my confidence? And the mentor says, it depends. And the character says, what what does it depend on? And the uh, mentor, Cody says, on how hard you're willing to work. And Mm. the character stops and thinks about what he wants and says, I'm willing to do it. And that's just a prerequisite for all the thing that's going to happen is that you're going to have to be willing. And, and, and again, in the bowling scene, uh, the character is, is laughed at because he bowls a 40 and he mentions, well, you know, my grandmother could bowl a 40 and she's dead. And the car- and people are laughing at his score. And, and the, the mentor just turns to him and says, listen, this is what it takes to build the confidence. What is it that you want? And again, he thinks about what he wants. He says, so are we bowling? And the character pauses and says, yes. And so along the way, that message is is consistently put out there. Such an important message. It really, really is. Um, Let's talk a little bit about social anxiety and dealing with that. I think it's so hard when you're the teen or the preteen and you're in the midst of it. You just don't really know what to do. You know, you have these overwhelming feelings of of needing to flee, really, at, at yep. least in my case. I just wanted to be anywhere but there, and nothing mattered but being anywhere but there. And it's real hard to deal with. How do we help our kids really navigate that in a more successful way? Because, you know, anybody with anxiety knows that you can't just say, well, that's not rational. Right. You know, we can't turn it off. It's it's the way our brain is wired to some extent, but we can learn how to navigate it successfully. Absolutely. And I think there there are two parts to social anxiety. The first is the logistics. It's the mechanics. If you don't know how to approach a conversation, you could be the most confident person in the world. It ain't going to work. And And one of the pieces is whether the struggle with the how and the mechanics comes from a struggle with internally a understanding social skills, or even if you're quite adept at social skills, but because you've been avoiding interaction, you've actually taken a step backwards and haven't followed along with the natural development that would naturally happen for you if you were continuing to be involved. Both of those uh, present a roadblock. So it's not enough. Even if we're sensitive to these, uh, the anxiety piece of all of this, and we help that. What's so important is we also give our kids a basis in the mechanics and how to do that. So it's a two-part piece. And the second part is the actual anxiety. And the anxiety uh, originates, again, the, the, my belief of it from my knowledge of the literature that's out there, as well as uh, the experience that I have in session, is that at its core, um, and this is true of anxiety as a whole. If you go to kind of little coping tools here and there or talking, like you said, is this rational? Is this not rational? It doesn't make a big difference. The biggest piece that makes a difference is going to the most feared outcome because anxiety at its core is a coping tool. It is a defense mechanism. If I 
worry about each of these little pieces. I don't have to worry about the real underlying fear. Let's take uh, planes, for example. I'm going to worry about uh, people say the sound that the plane is making and the bumps and this and that. And so it's not going to help you to say over and over again, turbulence is not dangerous. And the flights, statistically, it's the most safe thing. What you have to do is go to the underlying fear and say, yes, I can't guarantee. Yes, it's very unlikely, but I cannot guarantee you the plane ain't going down. And it's the Mm. very same thing with social anxiety. I can't guarantee you that people will not give you bad looks, irritated looks, laugh at your face, talk about you behind your back. And if we figure out how to handle the worst case scenario, if you can be okay, if the worst case scenario happens, then everything else disappears. Instead of trying to place the blocks on top of the carpet and make it make it so it's not so high, you rip the carpet out from underneath it and the blocks that, that are preventing you from moving forward go flying. And so that goes right back to the confidence piece as well, where handling and being okay with failure is at the core of it. Yeah. That's so true. It's social failure, the fear of social failure, the fear of not being accepted, of being judged. That's really a lot of what social anxiety is or was for me in particular. I just wanted everybody to like me and it was hard, (laughs) right? And I didn't have the confidence that everybody would, I guess. Um, And as I've gotten older, I've learned what, what matters and what doesn't matter more, you know, and I've been able to navigate that a lot more. And And it comes from really what is the worst, you know, having that experience over the decades of what could have been the worst that happened. And as an adult, I could see that the worst, if it did happen, I would be okay. And that's when I really started to be able to manage social anxiety well, was when I realized that. And I never really put the two together until you explained that. But that is it really sounds like everything is boiling down to confidence, having confidence and knowing that you'll be okay. Absolutely. And there's a, a great article I read, and I, I wish I had off the top of my head the source of it, but it, it was so great. And, and, and it said that everybody has anxiety. And the difference between anxiety and it turning into anxiety disorder is the belief that you can handle it if the worst case scenario occurs. That is the single biggest factor in whether anxiety, which is a natural, healthy uh, emotion, one that gives signals, turns into something that is debilitating. Yeah, that's such a good point. Let's talk a little bit about handling bullying then. This is such a hot topic for parents in general of any child. It seems to be a really pervasive part of our culture. And unfortunately, it feels like it's grown even worse, I guess, with technology and with social media. But what can parents do to help their kids through it? I think it's a lot harder for us to prevent it, but we can certainly help our kids through it in a healthy way. Absolutely. And, you know, one of some of the, there's, there's just a lot of great work being done uh, these days. Uh, one of my favorite things that are being done is, is a dual training, training the kids who are being, who are actually the, actually the victims. And of course, as I think at this point, it, it is to somewhat degree a cliche, turning bystanders into upstanders. 
Um, and both of those pieces are, an, are absolutely necessities. As parents, it's very hard because we are biologically, evolutionarily geared to protect our young. Uh, yep. our, and, and so what is that? And naturally, if a bear attacks our child, if a tiger attacks our child, it is very simple. You go ahead and you kill the bear and you kill the tiger. And when it comes to a lot of the modern day parenting, that simply doesn't work. And we have to, as parents, violate our natural biological urges because the thing that can help our child most is by training them and allowing them to deal with it the most. We need to give the bow and arrow, the rock, the hatchet to our child to kill that bear themselves, to kill that tiger themselves, rather than us doing it. In this case, it's the same way. What we found is that reporting things to the school authorities, to our parents, is only part of it. We want to encourage our kids to feel comfortable. And school's jobs are there to create programs that uh, make kids more comfortable to report, but it's only part of it. What we've got to be able to do is train our kids how to react in a way that is effective if they're getting bullying. And I, I highly suggest the work of Jennifer Lofson in, in the peers curriculum. I think that that is the most uh, effective uh, way. And I actually incorporate some variation of it into the book. The way the book helps kids deal with it is both teaching them how to react uh, by, again, seeing characters react to bullying, as well as to be upstanders. But let's talk a little bit about what it is for a kid who's being bullied to react. Uh, and kids really thrive when there is something that is, you know, straightforward. So there is a three-step process that I kind of like. It's based off of the Pierce curriculum, but it starts with, so somebody says something nasty to you, right? And you say, whatever, okay? And then they come back at you stronger because one of the things our kids got to learn is it ain't going to stop right away, right? Yeah. So they come back at you stronger and you say, and your point is. And then they keep going. But this, this last part is so powerful. After they've gone after you a third time, you turn to them and say, wow, you really think about me a lot. Boom. Mm. Right? What, what are they going to say? Like, no, I don't. Well, well you, and yeah. You say, yeah, you do. You, you keep talking about me. And that just shuts it down. And they won't. Then you smile. You wait for a moment. You turn and you go. And I think that, that small but effective formula is so important, including, hey, it won't stop right away. But if you keep doing that, if you show outwardly that you're not affected, inwardly, you could be dying. But if you put a smile on your face and you say those words and you stick around and then you walk away exactly in that order and you keep doing that, you make it a lot harder for the bullies to succeed. They say that the, the statistic is that 85% of bullying takes place in front of other people. I think that is under uh, reporting it yeah. because the point of bullying what the real research shows bullying is not a kid struggling to deal with things and taking it out on people. Bullies as a whole have better social skills than the average kids have better grades than the average kids. They know how to bully well. And your job is to counteract that with effective social skills and let it not because bullying is a power play. I want to see as a bully, I want you to think of me incredibly highly. The way I do that is by putting other people down. If that doesn't work, then eventually I need to move on and figure something else out. So 
the, the book models that particular way of going about it and encourage the upstanding, encourages the people who are witnessing it. And, and the research also shows that it is traumatic for people who, we, who witness it. Even if you're not being bullying, it has a traumatic effect on people witnessing it. Fear, um, a discomfort in giving them something to be powerful, a, a phrase, something that they can say that allows them to feel like they have control over the situation, that they can do something, totally changes the game. Yeah, I think that control piece is so important. It's important with anxiety. It's important even in confidence. You know, if you feel like you don't have any control over anything in your life, you're not likely very confident. Um, You're probably pretty worried and anxious and you wouldn't be able to stand up to a bully. You know, really, it seems like a common thread with a lot of things when, when we feel like we have some power and control we end up being able to navigate a lot of situations better and to just feel better in general. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think control is one of the most underrepresented concepts in therapy. Think about it, right? Depression is, I can't do anything to make it better. Anxiety is, I can't control me being safe. Uh, trauma is, I couldn't control the situation. In fact, there are studies with trauma that if somebody has been in a traumatic situation, a, a disaster zone, um, and they were given a task, go get water, go get blanket. Their rate of post-traumatic stress disorder goes down significantly because simply they had control over something. Yeah, I think that's a lot of what we're struggling with as a whole during the pandemic is we feel like we have so little control over so much. You know, I know my own son is struggling with doing school at home. And he even said this morning that he just, you know, it's all hard right now. And he just wants it to be different. He's done with the way it is right now. He's just done with it. He wants to have more control. He wants to have more normalcy. And and that lack of control is really tough. And it's tough for me too. You know, I feel like, hey, we thought it was going to be a couple of months. And now here we are many months in. And And it's, my daughter was just sent home from college after two weeks, they gave up in person and, you know, everything just is still kind of spiraling. And so we really have to, I think, be very mindful of focusing on what we can control. And I do a lot of that work myself, you know, when I feel like I'm really kind of spiraling in that feeling helpless sort of way, sometimes I say, okay, well, those are the things that I can't control. What can I control? And just shifting my focus. And that's so important um, for everyone is that locus of control. You know, what can we control and what can't we? But we always need to have a sense of controlling something. You know, we just need to have that to really move forward and feel good about anything at all. You know, if you feel completely out of control, you're right. That's when we have all of these other struggles and that can really spiral into depression and into just this sort of pit of despair. And I think it's much tougher right now in our current situation because there's so much that we don't control. We can't control other people. Absolutely. I'm in total agreement. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to make sure that we talked about that you shared before we wrap up? Uh, No, it's just uh, I hope everybody goes and, and checks out the book. I'm really excited about it. And I think it's just it's just a great and fun way uh, to give our kids skills without without them actually knowing they're getting it. Yep, yep. And the book's available now. 
on Amazon and paperback and Kindle ebook, correct? Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. And so we'll link up. It's the crimsonprotector.com. I will link that up in the show notes as well as other ways to connect with Dr. Kranzler. And I will link up any resources that we've talked about as well in this episode. So you can access all of that information at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 104 for episode 104. And I just want to take a second and thank you again, Dr. Kranzler, for sharing a little of your time and wisdom and for creating this book, because I think it's going to be so very powerful for tweens and teens and even young adults like ours who are neurodiverse and are struggling. I think it's going to be a really helpful way for us as parents to step out of the middle and get those skills, get that knowledge to them, get that something in their hand to help them with the growth that they need, but sometimes they resist from us. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And uh, thank you so much for having on me on your amazing podcast. Thank you. With that, we'll end the episode and I will see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com.